Good morning again, Redeemer family. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, we'll be picking up in uh, verse 9 and reading through verse 23. If you're visiting with us, uh, we try to uh, preach through books of the Bible unless we're doing uh, a thematic or topical series. And so uh, for uh, a a long stretch of the journey, we'll be in 1 Corinthians uh, whenever I get up to handle God's Word. And I want us to look at this theme, the church, uh, sometimes tarnished always treasured and being transformed by God. That, that's kind of the thing that I'm thinking about as we approach this. This means that most of the time when we deal with this text, we're going to be, uh, Paul's going to be uncovering areas in the lives of the church in Corinth where they were just not living up to uh, or in light of uh, beautiful realities that were true uh, for them This morning, Paul roots their struggle, and he is still talking about their boasting. You can see it down in verse 22, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. So he's still, this theme is still fresh upon his heart, but but he roots their struggle with this in ignorance, ignorance of some new corporate realities. Look at Paul's question in verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And so they didn't know the stakes were so high. But look at the play on words. But God knows. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 20. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The Lord catches the wise in their craftiness. I think what Paul is saying is is they acted out of ignorance. But the Lord was not ignorant to what was, they were doing. The Lord was not ignorant to what was happening. And therefore, the Lord sent word to Paul through Chloe, and Paul is writing the letter. And so the Lord himself is catching them up in what they're doing. But God doesn't just want to catch them and correct them. He's out to change them because he's given us the mind of Christ. This is what Paul is doing in the passage. And so we, like them, can have inferior and improper views of the church. How would you complete this sentence? The church of God is blank. How would you feel that blank? Some people would say church is optional. I go when I feel like it. Some would say the church is a business. They're selling Jesus to turn a profit. Others will say the church must be a community center and you measure the health of the church based on its programs. Some may not say it, but the only value of the church, it's where you go to get married and where you go to get buried. For some, it's a place my parents make me go and I tune out. I don't see relevance. You can guarantee that when our view of the church is wrong, how we engage her will also be wrong. This passage is a beautiful corrective, not just to them, but for us. Paul's going to fill that blank in and say the church of God is God's temple. It's God's building. And that means something. Let's read it. Starting in verse 9. You all, and the, the you here is plural throughout this entire section. So this is not Paul talking to an individual. He's talking to them collectively. 
You all are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you all are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you all are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Amen? Let's pray. Father, your word is living and active and powerful. Your word is more precious than gold. How can we keep our way pure? By hiding your word in our hearts. Your word corrects us. Your word confronts us. Your word is truth. Your word conforms us to the image of Jesus. Your word prepares us for a life of faith and godliness. And Father, would you use your word through your servant to build up your people? And Father, would you forgive us all of our sins? Settle our minds from distractions. Allow us for these next minutes, Lord, to listen to you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got four points for you today. And uh, the first thing I want us to think about is the church is the partial fulfillment of the temple. That's the first point. The church is the partial fulfillment of the temple. Corinth uh, was a booming and bustling city thanks to the rebuilding efforts of uh, Octavian or Octavius, who was the first and perhaps greatest Roman emperor. Uh, it became a city to be reckoned with. Matter of fact, his last words before he died was, I found the Roman Empire as clay, but I have left it to you as marble. Its location was a beautiful port city. They even had technology then where if you were on a ship and did not want to go all the way around the island and, and, and come back up and run into smaller islands, that your ship could be brought into a port in Corinth and put on railroad-like tracks and carried across the island, and then you'd end up on the other side, saving you travel, saving cargo, and therefore, it was a booming city. They were building everywhere. It was expanding. And it's up and against that background 
that Paul actually is saying, hey, I need an image that sticks. You people love your buildings. You people have all of your temples. Well, let me tell you that there's someone building something that's greater than your emperor. There's a building being built that's more beautiful than anything you've seen. And that's what Paul says in verse 9. He says, you all are God's field, comma, then God's building. And then he uses all of this building language of foundation and building and foundation and materials. And then in verse 16, he reveals the building that he's talking about. He says, do you know the building that God is building in Corinth? Look at it. You are the temple. In other words... The building that God is building is his temple right there in Corinth. I think what Paul is saying is that partial fulfillment of the temple is found in the local church. Now, to get at this, we have to do some Old Testament temple theology. You have to understand that from the beginning of time, God's longing was to dwell in a special place with his special people. Heaven is his home and earth is his footstool. But from the beginning of time, God longed to and did commune with his people. And so Adam and Eve had that in the garden and God walked with them and talked with them and taught them. But fast forward to Exodus 25, when Israel had been delivered out of bondage in Egypt, the Lord comes to Moses And he commands Moses in Exodus 25 to build me a tabernacle. Let them make me a sanctuary. And listen to the language that I may dwell in their midst according to the pattern that I will show you, Moses. In other words, you don't just build anything. The pattern I'm going to reveal for you to build for me is going to be a dwelling place of God. And therefore you build it. But when Moses built the tabernacle, it too had elements of Eden in it. And so we hear about the two cherubim that's in the tabernacle. Where did that come from? That came from Eden. We hear about things that were carved, plants and trees and flowers that were put in the tabernacle. Where did that come from? It's echoing Eden. Then you get to the United Kingdom with Solomon. David wants to build God a temple. God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. Your son will build my house. And in 1 Kings chapter 5, Solomon says, David, my father, could not build a temple, but I will do as the Lord commanded. And Solomon built the temple. And it's important to note that if you read 1 Kings 5, echoes of Eden are also there. We see those same two cherubim. We see trees carved out of olive wood and gourds and flowers, right? And so somehow Eden is going with temple throughout every building project in the Old Testament. But then Ezekiel chapter 10 saw a vision. He saw a vision of the glory of the Lord departing the temple. And the Israelites knew exactly what that meant. It meant that God would no longer dwell with them. They were unholy and unrepentant. And therefore the glory of the Lord left the temple. And when the glory of the Lord left the temple, the temple artifacts were taken by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. And the people were taken into captivity. But Ezekiel saw another vision. He saw a vision of the glory of the Lord returning to a new temple. And so in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus, the king of Persia, sent the captives back. And he said, the Lord has charged me to build him a house again. 
And so under Zerubbabel's leadership, those exiles who had been cast away during Nebuchadnezzar were sent back home. And under Zerubbabel's leadership, they built a new temple. But the old people who were young people when Solomon's temple was built, who were taken away, who returned, everyone around them were rejoicing that this new temple was built. But the old people were not. They said, this looks nothing like the Lord promised. And they wept. And that temple was improved upon by Herod the Great. And it was a 46-year building project to improve the temple. And it was so glorious that when you get to Mark 13, Jesus walks out of the temple with his disciples. And his disciples saw the wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, do you see this great building? There will not be here one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. So what, what, wait a minute, Ezekiel, I thought you saw a day of a temple. And then here is Jesus saying, no, that temple right there, it has a shelf life. It's going to be torn up. And so the magic question is this, that temple was torn down in AD 70. Where's the temple? Where's the temple? Peter answers it this way. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Paul says, do you not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells among you? And did you notice the shift in the imagery? First, Paul calls them what? The field. A field where things grow. And then he goes straight to the temple. That sounds like echoes of Eden, doesn't it? It sounds like Paul knows exactly what he's saying, that the temple is going to have echoes of that beautiful place where God dwelt with his people. And that's true now. And so here is what Paul wants us to know. The church is the partial fulfillment of the temple. And I say partial because Jesus Christ said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it. Whoa, what was Jesus talking about? He's talking about himself. He's saying the way you commune with God is through me. The glory of the Lord is expressed in me. Your sins atone for in me. And so here's the question, which one is it? Is Jesus the temple? Or is the church the temple? Which one is it? It's both. How can something so important be partially realized in the church? Greg Beale has this beautiful uh, illustration. He says, suppose it was 1900 and a father had promised his son that the day that you get married, I will get you and your wife a horse and buggy. Right? That's the promise. The father in his wisdom knew from early experimentation that the automobile was on the brink of being mass produced. But he, he promised his son a horse and buggy because his son could not comprehend gas combustion engines. And so he made the promise to the son, I'm going to give you a horse and buggy because a four-year-old uh, year son, that is what he can comprehend. 
But the automobile was invented. And instead of giving the son a horse and buggy, the dad gave the son a car. Here's the question. Is the son disappointed because his dad gave him a car? I don't know about you, but give me a car over a horse and buggy a hundred times out of a hundred. Is that not a literal fulfillment? Did the dad not give his son a reliable means of transportation? Yes, he kept his word and he far exceeded his son's hopes and dreams. He goes on to say, the purpose of the temple in the Old Testament and the purpose of the expected end time temple was a place to house God's glory before which his people were to worship. In both cases, God's glory inhabits a temple, but in the former expression, it is limited, while in the latter, it shines forth in an unfettered manner. What was the purpose of the temple? A place where God's glory would dwell a place where God would meet with his people, a place where he would love and teach and serve and forgive and sanctify. And where is that temple? In part, it is in Jesus. And the other part is in the church. All along, all of those commands to come to the temple, care for the temple, visit the temple, meet me in the temple. God had the local church in mind. He had something better than the localized building in Jerusalem. He had a decentralized assembly of churches scattered across the planet. And this means a few things, saints. It means first that God is serious about the church. Did you notice what he says? You destroy the temple, God will destroy you. You hear what God is saying? You destroy my church. You got to answer to me. That is how serious the church is. Second, that God communes with us in a different, and I would add better way, when we are together, all of these yous are you all, you all, you all, you all in a way that is different than you spending time alone with Jesus in your personal quiet time. And I'm for quiet times. I think we ought to be communing with the Lord Jesus. We ought to be in the word, yes and amen, but there is something sacred and special and beautiful and different that happens when saints are together. Third, this is where God manifest his glory. This is where Holy Spirit moves. This is where we are to be a holy people in an unholy world. We are to be people who live lives in harmony with God's words. God had all of this in mind when he created the church. Second thing, God's temple, the church, is in the process of being built right now. So did you know that the longest construction project known to man is believed to be the Great Wall of China? 
Some say that it began in 400 B.C. and it was not completed until 16 A.D. That's 2,000 years of construction, brick by brick, brick by brick, brick, brick by brick. And I think Paul would have something to say about that. He said, if you want to know the longest construction project, it's not the Great Wall of China. It's the church. Now, notice the language that Paul uses here. He says, I laid a foundation and others are building upon it. Notice the language of work and laying and building, but notice the day of completion. You find that in verse 13. So something's going to be happening from the day of Christ's resurrection to some day. Look at verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. And so what does Paul have in mind? He has in mind the day that King Jesus returns. That's when the building of the church is done. But until Jesus returns, the church is being built brick by brick. Now, what does this have to do with Eden and the tabernacle and Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple? What does all of that have in common with this passage? None of those temples ever fused together by themselves. In Genesis, God made everything out of nothing. God could have slung the bricks to make his own temple. He could have caused molecules to come together to build his own tabernacle. But that is not the pattern. The pattern you see is God wants to commune and dwell with his people. And then God does what? He commissions his people to actually do the building. And so Adam and Eve be fruitful and multiply, rule the earth, fill it, subdue it, right? That language of, of ruling and subduing. What about when you get to Exodus 25? How did the tabernacle get built? Every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive contributions of gold and silver and bronze and purple and scarlet yarns and wood and let them make me a sanctuary. In 1 Kings 5, how did Solomon's temple get built? Solomon had 30,000 men, 70,000 burden bearers, 80,000 stone cutters, 3,300 overseers of the people doing the work. What about Ezra 1 and 2 when Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple? You know what we're told? 42,360 plus the male and female servants, numbering 7,337 plus 200 singers plus horses. You get all of that? Like, that, that is not unimportant. That what you're seeing in every instance where temple is built for Yahweh to dwell, every instance where God communes with his people, you know who do the work? God's people. And so when Paul talks about, I lay a foundation and someone else is building and they're building with this and they're building with that and their work will stand in this. Do you get what Paul is saying? The church is still being built brick by brick until the day that King Jesus returns. Until then, this beautiful house for Yahweh to dwell and commune is being built. This is the longest construction project 
ever. We already exceeded the Great Wall of China. This 2022. Now, at first glance, it might appear that Paul only has pastors and leaders in mind in this text. But notice how vague he gets. He says, let each one take care how he builds. Verse 12, if anyone builds, verse 13, each one's work. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has done, verse 15, anyone's work is burned. Craig Blomberg writes this. Some are tempted to limit the application of this imagery to a minority of believers, pastors and church leaders. But the day that you see in verse 13 is a future public reckoning all must face at Christ's return. Given that all believers are leaders in some sphere, small sphere of ministry, and that all ultimately contribute in one way or the other to the growth, the stagnation, or the harm of the church, it is far too restrictive to limit the judgment of these verses to just teachers. Whew. So think about the day that Jesus returns. Do you think that only teachers and pastors will stand before him and give an account to what we've done with our lives? Of course no. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we must all receive payment for what we've done in the body, good or evil. And so what we're doing here is being stretched. And I think what Paul would have us to know is that every Christian is a brick. And every Christian is a builder. The day that you met King Jesus... According to Peter, you became a living stone and you were placed into something bigger than you. A family bigger than your earthly family. And you as a living stone was stacked into this beautiful edifice and you're connected to other bricks, other Christians. And you are simultaneously now a builder, brick and builder. And we, we, we have a mind for this, right? Jesus is called the high priest and the sacrifice, right? You, you catch it? He's both. He's the one offering the sacrifice, but he is offering himself. And so it makes perfect sense that we can be a brick being built up. And guess what? We are brick with some hands and feet on it who are helping construct this beautiful temple of the Lord. We're like the Old Testament saints who gave of their gold, gave of their silver, who traveled hundreds of miles to rebuild because we want the glory of the Lord in our midst. We want his name to be famous. We want our children and their children and their children's children and our enemies and our friends to know God. And the beauty of the temple that's being built right now is every man, woman, child, young, old, black, white, middle class, rich, poor, 
old, we're all builders. You see, I love to see kids drop their 35 cents in a collection plate. <laughs> it make me want to say amen. I love to hear children crying for milk. It reminds us to hunger and thirst for the Lord. I love seeing gray-haired saints. And you know what they remind us? That the Lord, you so good, Lord, you knew me when I was in my mama's womb. And in my gray-haired years, you're going to carry me in the glory. Ain't you faithful, right? You, you get the point? The point is this. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you own. You are, by virtue of your union with Jesus, a brick in his temple, and you are a builder. The church is not a country club where we come to to get waited on. It's like walking into Chick-fil-A. How may I serve you today, sir? And you know what? I love this church. Your staff, we get a front row seat into watching you all grow. I've seen marriages restored. I've watched you walk through suffering and hardship and immense loss. And I walk away praising God. I've watched you with things that mastered you over time. You learned to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We get a chance to see it. And we hear about it. You're being built up. And we get a chance to watch you serve. And you do the building. Like last week at that fish fry. <laughs> Y'all was frying some food and inviting neighbors and singing some songs and playing music and staying up, staying late until 1130 at night, cleaning up and getting there an hour early to set up. Guess what? You are building. You are working. It is a joy to watch you all be bricks being built up and be builders. It is one of the best things about this role is we get to see it. And you know what passages like this do? If you are on the fringes, not using your gifts, and not doing the building, and not kind of rubbing up against people in the body of the church. You're missing out, baby. I promise you, you are. God's church is being built right now. The third thing is, therefore, we must all take great care in how we build. We must take great care in how we build. Third point. So when we bought our house, uh, I shared with you before that it was a foreclosed property and it needed a lot of work. And um, I convinced my wife to not hire a contractor and to let me be the contractor. And I ain't never contracted nothing about no house now, right? <laughs> and some of y'all in this room came over and, and rescued me and rescued us. But 
So to be to be your own contractor means that you have to find your subcontractors yourself. And if they do shoddy work, you have no one to turn to but you. That's what it means to be a contractor. And so we needed a new roof. You know how I picked my roof? We walked outside of our door and my neighbor on the corner right there was getting his roof done. And I walked over to his house. I said, hey, man, would you recommend your roofer? Yes, sir. And I got his number and that same guy did my roof. Two months after he did my roof, we had a gallon of water in our kitchen light. It, it just started raining and raining and raining. And we're in the, in the den watching TV. We just hear something fall. And we, I ran into the kitchen and we got water coming through a light fixture. I'm like, okay, he did shoddy work. Our, our painter, he was a great painter. But here's the thing, when you're spending money, Everybody can become experts about everything. And he says, okay, you, Mr. McGowan, I can hang your drywall. I'm like, all right, well, you do my drywall. And on the surface, it looked really good until it got cool and the house shifted a little bit. And now I got seams running through the drywall. And we finally get a real drywall guy over there. He said, Mr. McGowan, we well, actually went to her. You got one problem. Your drywall guy hung your drywall the wrong way. I'm, this is the truth. <laughs> no care in how they did the work. And when the elements came, the rain or the cool weather, the quality of their work was revealed. The church is God's temple. It is holy. And did you notice what Paul says in verse 10? He says, every one of you, take care how you build. I think the link to holiness in this passage is through their not building correctly. They were in danger of building on faulty foundations. That's why they were arguing over men. And Paul says, man, the, the building your church on a man, that ain't going to go well. They were enamored with wisdom. That is earthly wisdom will not stand the test of fire. And so Paul is saying, look, man, this is serious stuff. You're a brick and you're a builder. You got to take care in how you build. And so how do we take care in our building? I think building with care demands that we labor in light of the day. Verse 13, Paul talks about this day. This isn't the first time he talks about it. 1 Corinthians 7, you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is bringing to mind that future day when Jesus returns. And he will serve as the inspector. And he won't come with cold air or water. He comes with fire. That element will test the quality of our work. And I don't know about you. That's a little bit intimidating. On that day, Jesus will return. And notice what it says, that, 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 that some will receive an eternal reward. And if another's work is burned, he will suffer loss, 
Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I think what, what Paul is saying is like, hey, when Jesus returns, he's going to do what is right and fair. He is going to assess all of our works and reward accordingly. And what Paul is saying, therefore, in light of his future return, in light of this God who sees our thoughts and knows our motives, be careful how you labor right now. That's one way. Another way we build with care is laboring with the right materials. Paul talks about gold and silver and precious stones and wood and hay and straw. I think there are really two divisions, not six. The divisions are what is costly, what is enduring, what is flammable, and what is weak. Do we find a correlation in the Bible that might help us understand what Paul means by here? I think the Psalms might help us. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. More to be desired are your commands than gold, even much fine gold. That Paul could be saying, those who build around the word of God and with the word of God and by the word of God. And for conformity to the word of God, that will endure. Not earthly wisdom. Not what always makes people comfortable. Not entertaining them. Building around the word. Building on the right foundation is how we build with care. I'm no builder, but foundations must be thick and wide and enduring. They must support the entire structure. They true the whole structure up. What trues up the church? What does the church rest upon? What causes the church to crumble if you move this thing? And it's not a thing, it's the person. So Paul says, no one can lay another foundation other than the foundation that I have laid. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. The hymn writer got it right on Christ, the solid rock. I stand all other ground is sinking sand when all around my soul gives way. He is all my hope and stay. Nothing anchors the church like the gospel and like the person and work of Jesus. We're not out here entertaining people. We're not out here giving people our best wisdom that what we want people to know and who we want people to know and what we want to be conformed to is the image of King Jesus. And so Paul is reminding them that as we build, as we labor, we do excellent work in the service of Christ. We serve him with joy and thoughtfulness and humility and focus. We cherish the word and let it be what we teach and live and learn and speak. We're to be prayerful and present. We're to work wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. We're to engage our whole hearts and souls and mind and strength. And we're building on the foundation of Christ. That's the third point. And here's the final point. God is a gracious provider of all you need to build. God is the gracious provider of all you need to build. This feels daunting to me. 
we're talking about the church and God's temple. Who in this room has always had this view of the church? Who in this room has always done everything right to build her up? Who in this room has always lived with the return of Jesus impressed upon our hearts? Who in this room has always served the church out of delight and not duty? You see, I'm convinced that when you're dealing with this holy thing, the church, that God sees our motives. He sees our thoughts. He sees our laziness. He sees our indifference. He sees all the ways in which we don't do what we're called to do here. Where is the good news? One barrier to your building is your own unholiness. God's people couldn't just come into the temple and start building and start grabbing things. Go ask Belshazzar who drank out of the artifacts out of the temple. And Daniel says, you fool, tonight you die. Go ask Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire in God's tabernacle and fire came and consumed them. We ought to have a sense of fear and trembling. What will God do about our unholiness? And you know the answer. The church is only the partial fulfillment of God's temple. Jesus is the rest. In Jesus, God meets you. In Jesus, God has taken away all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of his judgment, all of his wrath. In Jesus, God has given you a holiness and a righteousness that is alien to you. Now, how do we see this in the text? Look at verse 13 through 15. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. That doesn't say the person will be burned up. Only his work, they will suffer loss, though they themselves will be saved, even if their eyebrows are on fire. You see what Paul is saying? On that day when Jesus returns, you may lose some eternal reward. But what you won't lose is your eternal righteousness. That was never your work. It was Jesus' work. And it is impeccable. It is enduring. And it is ours by faith. Let this sink in, beloved. Another barrier to serving is our lack of skill. I would hate, maybe not hate, but man, think about building the temple or the tabernacle. Who's the person who has to carve that stuff? And you just can't put no mismatched stuff in God's temple, right? This stuff got to be symmetrical. It has to align to his pattern. I mean, his divine pattern, my hands would be shaking. And you know what Paul says? 
according to the grace of God given me, verse 10, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation. That calls our attention back to Exodus, doesn't it? When God called Bazalel and filled him with the spirit of the Lord, with the ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and the cutting of stones and carving of woods, that what God did back then is, I want a tabernacle and I want a temple, but guess what? My spirit will be poured out on the one who will do the work. And so the God who calls you to the work is the God who gives you the grace to do the work that meets his requirements. And that is the same thing that Paul says. I didn't just lay a foundation. That wasn't according to Paul. God gave me grace to save me and God gave me grace gifts to enable me to serve him. And that's good news. This means that what God wants you to be doing to build up the church. God has already given you the gifts to do it. If you have the gift of teaching, God says teach. The gift of serving, God says serve. The gift of singing, God says sing. The gifts of evangelism, God says evangelize. The gift of wealth, God says give. In other words, we don't have to go out and start looking for, Lord, how do you want me to serve you? Because of the grace of God that saves you and gives you all you need to serve him, we look at what God has been up to. That's a whole different paradigm, isn't it? But that's what Paul is saying. This also means you can harm the church not by actively sinning against her. You can also harm the church by passively sitting on the sidelines when God has endowed you with beautiful gifts to be used in the service of Jesus. Do you see, beloved, God graciously removes all barriers that we all might be builders. What would it look like if we all view the church this way? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this reminder that you have made your dwelling place among us. Father, we acknowledge that it is so easy, Lord, for us to not live in step with these truths. And so, Father, I, along with us, ask for your patience and for your grace. Thank you that you have covered our sins. Thank you that you have given us your spirit. Thank you that you are on a relentless mission to make us holy. Thank you that you are pleased to abide and dwell with us because of our union with Jesus. I pray that we would see this local expression of your church as an expression of your temple. Do so that your name would be honored. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.